Second Peter. That was gorgeous, wasn't it? And a wee bit intimidating for the guy who comes up next. passage that they read, the passage we'll be going through this morning, which makes sense, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. As Peter's talking to people he loves, people he knows, people he is committed to leading through thick and thin, he spent his entire time in 1 Peter, uh, encouraging them to live a life that is different than everybody around them. And then here in 2 Peter, as we're going to see starting next week, he's, he's digging into some significant problems that have arisen in that church, in that community in those friendships, and uh, he is going to speak directly and, quite honestly, uncomfortably at times, but before he gets there, he makes sure that he lays the foundation for everything that's going to come next, and so that's why in his word, in these words that we read this morning, he begins in verse 16 by saying to these friends, these people he loves, these people he's leading, he says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't, we didn't use fancy stories. Myths of that day, of that era, were almost like Marvel comics. They were, they were created to make somebody way bigger than they actually were, and the, the intent behind sharing this mystical story of this mythological hero was to encourage, persuade, push people to action. And Peter says, when we came to you, we didn't waste our time with those, because we didn't have to. So many people in 2021 are trying to define who Jesus is to them. To them. And so if you go to the Library of Congress, you are going to find more than 30,000 books written on who Jesus is to that person. You find more than a hundred movies about who Jesus is. You find countless religions that are trying to uh, grab onto and define Jesus based on their terms. When it comes right down to it, too many of us are defining Jesus through our personal worldview. I'll dumb that down a little bit. Too many of us are defining Jesus based on what we see in the mirror in the morning. Let me explain. Goes all the way back to somebody like Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro saw Jesus as being the first communist. Hitler claimed that Jesus was the first Nazi. Hollywood clings to Jesus as another hippie. Pop culture sees Jesus as a good man, just not the God man. Atheists see Jesus like they would a character in Aesop's fables. Never really existed, but we can learn something from him. Republicans see Jesus as a Republican. Democrats see Jesus as a Democrat. Legalists see Jesus as somebody they can never make happy. The opposite of legalist is antinomianism, or something closely related to that word. They see Jesus as somebody they can just ignore. Prosperity Christians see Jesus as a lottery ticket, and many other Christians see Jesus as a, a bodyguard or a butler who will never allow harm, never allow difficulty, never allow trial or temptation. Instead, he's only going to bring me great blessing. And when confronted with what their view of Jesus looks like, they say, no, I know what your view of Jesus is. That's not my Jesus. 
Jesus cannot be defined by what we see in the mirror. Those are the myths, the cleverly contrived myths that Peter is talking about here. Peter says, when we came to you and we talked to you, and I'm not going to get into some of this because it will come up later, but he says, we came and talked to you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We came and talked to you about the, the return or the arrival, <clears throat> excuse me, or the presence of Jesus. I believe this is talking about his imminent return when Christ returns victorious king. He's going to talk about that later in Second Peter, which is why it leads me to that. But, but, but he says, when we came to talk to you about this and describe to you who Jesus was, we didn't need to go back to these myths because we had two other far more reliable resources. He says, first... I have my own eyewitness account and experience of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So, so Peter is talking about this experience he had with Jesus. With Peter, it was James and John and Peter all got to go with Jesus up the mountain. You read it in Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 17, uh, Luke chapter 9. And what you find is as, as Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to the top of the mountain, suddenly, out of seemingly nowhere, Jesus, the Greek word is metamorpho, he changes. He changes dramatically. The glory of God is suddenly exploding out of Jesus on that mountaintop. The, 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 the brightness and the image that we get is a picture of just blinding light as this glory explodes from Jesus. What, what has been hidden from sight for the rest of his life suddenly in that moment is visible. Which is why I would argue that the greatest miracle that occurred in that moment wasn't the realization that Jesus was God and the glory was coming out of him. The greatest miracle in that moment was the realization that Jesus only presented his human side for those 30 plus years. He was able to humbly deny the full expression of divinity. And on that mountain, Jesus presses pause on the miracle of Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis, the emptying of his divinity to take on form as a servant and the likeness of humanity. He presses pause on that so that suddenly Peter, James, and John see who he really is. How do you describe this glory that bursts out of Jesus in that moment? Well, you've got three different gospel authors and three different descriptions. You've got Matthew who says that, <laughs> excuse me, that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. You've got Luke, who says it was dazzling white, which is actually the uh, same Greek word that they would use to talk about the explosion of, of a strike of lightning. That's the glory. And then Mark goes, okay, listen, do you know when you get a t-shirt, like really white, it's like the whitest laundry you've ever seen, which is a kind of a weird description. <laughs> but, I mean, you want to give him credit, white clothes were rare at the time. But it was the only thing he could think of to describe it. It was that white. This is a, it's a huge moment. But it wasn't just because the glory of God was fully seen in Jesus, but it was also because there were two other people who arrived. You had the giver of the law, Moses, and the, the greatest of the prophets, Elijah, come and stand side by side next to Jesus on the mountain. We do not know how Peter, James, and John knew it was Elijah and Moses. We don't know if they introduced themselves, name tags. We have no idea what the deal was. 
We just know that now Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are standing there. Jesus is emanating the full glory of God. And the three of them, we're told by the, the Luke's account, they begin talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was to come. Peter, you know our man Peter, has as these three monsters of the faith, the, the, they're not even the monsters of the faith, Jesus, God himself in flesh, Moses and Elijah talking about the death and the resurrection, Peter sitting there not knowing what to say, starts talking immediately. It's a good thing to do when you don't know what to say. I suffer from that regularly. But what Peter says is, it's good that we get to be here that was a great open, Peter. Let's see where this goes. Well, it just gets worse. He says, I got an idea. Let's commemorate this moment. I can build three tents, one for each of you. Now, why, why would Peter want to build three tents? He, he wants to memorialize this amazing moment in his life. He wants to make it a more permanent thing. He wants to just stay and dwell on that mountaintop. I mean, Peter, Peter looks and he sees the two monsters of the faith, the giver of the law, the greatest of the prophets, standing next to Jesus, and he says, all three of you, I want to build you a tent, and he's going to place them on equal footing. Until, as Peter tells us in our passage this morning, the majestic glory helps straighten Peter out a little bit. Matthew tells us that as Peter is continuing to talk about the tents, and I don't know what he was saying. I can build you a circle one, a square one, a rectangle one, a triangle, red, yellow, purple, whatever color you want. It says, as Peter is still speaking about the tents, the voice of God, or as Peter tells us here, the voice of the majestic glory comes from the cloud and says, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Which in the Greek means Peter. Stop talking. It doesn't, really. It was a joke, so don't get mad. In that moment, Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. They had to see a full demonstration of his power, authority, his greatness, his importance. Jesus received the status of honor, and God's glory is fully displayed in him. Peter says, we ourselves heard the voice, saw the glow. We were with him in that moment. I don't need myths. I will tell you about who Jesus is based on my personal experiences. I got to sit there and see him in his full glory with our own eyes, the son of God, full of grace and truth. So when I talk to you about him, I ain't gonna pull your leg. I'm not gonna use the normal exclamations about him. I'm not gonna try to persuade you. I'm going to tell you, this is what I saw. This is what was revealed to me. He is God's beloved son. That is what they call a wild card in the game of Uno. You can throw anything down. I don't know if Uno even has wild cards, so never mind that. How about Rook? That, nope, never mind. I don't play cards. Neither should you. Good Christians don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> he, he could pull that card anytime he wanted. Oh, yeah? I got to see the full glory, majestic glory of Jesus Christ. I got to be in the mountain. So you should stop talking because I know the truth. I was there. But instead, he says, and even though that was my personal experience, there is a 
far better resource. There is an evidence that is fully confirmed, more sure, a certain foundation that is greater than anything that we've ever seen. It's more reliable than the experience of any person. And he begins talking about it, verse 19. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, we have this prophetic word strongly confirmed, more sure. It means literally the uh, secure anchor. It was a phrase that was used in a legal guarantee. This is binding. And he says, this resource that we have, this source of confidence that we have, when we tell you about who Jesus is, isn't in our experience. It isn't in how we feel. It's not in who Jesus is to me. It is found in the authority of God's word. God's word is not man-made, he says. No prophecy finds its source in man No prophecy is a man's interpretation, ideas based on what's happening around them. It's not man-made, it's God-breathed. That's what the word inspired means when we talk about the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3 is the passage that comes to mind for us when we think that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. God's word is inspired. So how does that work? (laughs) You think I can answer that one? I don't know. I I can tell you a few things based on our passage right here. First of all, men spoke as God carried them along by the Holy Spirit. We begin. Spoke. Carried. Those are past actions. So please understand this. The authority of God's word is in the text, not in your current understanding of the text, not in your experience of the text, not in how much you like the text or how much the text makes you uncomfortable. The authority is found in God's word. God used these authors of these words, the authors of each book of scripture. He used those authors to speak his words without overriding the personality or even the vocabulary of the author. I find that to be the most fascinating part about reading God's word. I can read the book of Luke or the book of Acts, both written by Luke, and what you find is a book that's been written by a researcher who's done his homework, who's done the interviews, who's asked the questions, and you can see him laying out his stories in that way. Then then you read the the, the books that Paul has written in the New Testament, and you are overwhelmed and, 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 and at times stimulated and at times discouraged when you try to understand the logic of a studied man, the logic of a lawyer. And then you read anything that Peter wrote, and it's just passion. See, see, in the inspiration of God's word, in the using of these authors, God didn't override the personality, the vocabulary of these men. Instead, in fact, it's, it's not mechanical in nature. The understanding of a mechanical is it's not a, the author wasn't a puppet. 
wasn't a secretary who just sat down and just, what God would I, okay, I should say that. What's that, God? okay, I should just say that. He, he doesn't do that. God uses each author, each strength, each experience, each word to communicate what he wants to communicate. How? It's, it's a theolo- theological term is concurrence. Concurrence, that means that God superintends the using of the gifts and personality of each author to communicate his intended purpose exactly as he would communicate it. It says that the men of God wrote as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So, so understand it this way. The same word is used in Acts chapter 27. Paul is on a boat. They're running into a storm and they're a little concerned, to say the least. They've got to figure out what they're going to do, so they start pitching things overboard because the storm's getting bad. And so now what's happening is the, the wind and the current is driving them along in the boat. I don't know if any of you have ever sailed before. Uh, there's great times to go sailing, usually when there's a slight breeze. Really a big bummer when you get in the middle of the lake and then there's no breeze. Been there, done that, not a lot of fun. And people make fun of you for a while. Being driven along is when your boat and the sails of your boat are filled full with that breeze. That's how God moved with these authors of scripture. Because God's word didn't come from man, because God's word came from God himself, it is all So you must believe it. Romans 3 says, let God be true and every man a liar. The common difficulty of the day is as people begin to fear some things, they just can't get to line up. And now they're afraid that if they say that this is the inspired word of God that is true and what it says, then they think that they're going to be responsible to defend what they see as possible deficiencies or mistakes in the word. Two things I want to make plain. There are certainly pieces of God's word that I cannot align even with each other. There are many places in God's word that I have a difficulty aligning with my own experience in life. But if I can't align those things, or if I can't figure those things out, it's not because the word is deficient, it's because I'm limited in my understanding. So, so here's an example that you see every day. A right understanding of scripture and a right understanding of science will never conflict. Never. The, the difficulty is too many people approach scripture through the lens of science. The greatest authority is science, and so, oh, this can't be right then. And the reality is that is not how it works. Scripture never bows to science. Science must be understood through the lens of Scripture. And yes, we misunderstand at times what we think God says. I don't know. I'll just be the only one that raises my hand. Don't feel like you need to. Have you ever been like, I know what this Scripture means. I get this perfectly. And then you're like, yeah. And then you start talking about it, and somebody goes, that's not what that means at all. Happens to me. I pray it doesn't happen from preaching, but there are times where it happens because, as James tells us, when there's a lot of words, plenty of sin. One of the reasons, this is a little off topic, so I gotta be careful about time. One of the reasons we are such local church people here at Uniontown Bible Church 
is because as you understand scripture, as you study scripture, as you meditate on scripture, you must be interpreting it in community, both in historical community and immediate community. Because the one who does that in isolation breaks out against all sound judgment, Proverbs 18.1 says. The ones who take God's word and try to interpret it in their own way to fit into their own worldview, to look a lot like them in the mirror, in an attempt to become wise, what they're doing is becoming fools. It must happen within the context of community. That was free. I'm going to keep going because the time's almost up. So not only is it uh, because it's God's word, we must believe it, we must value it. I love this phrase. It has stuck with me this week. Uh, I will use it in parenting very, very soon. You will do well to pay attention. You kind of get that feel, right? You would do well to pay attention. The problem is that phrase, pay attention, we lose a little bit of the drama of what that, that word means. Pay attention means to occupy your mind with something, to devote yourself to something, and if it's used, if that word is used in the context with wine, it means to be addicted to. Peter says you would do well to be addicted to God's word. It's also used as a nautical term to sail towards, to hold your course. It's to, to, to be, picture the boat in the dark, on the water, trying to make it to shore, trying to make it to port, and there's a, a lighthouse in the distance, which is he's talking about here, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You would do well to pay attention to it like you would that lighthouse, because if you ever let your eyes slip off that lighthouse, you are certainly going to be lost, if not in complete disaster. You do well to pay attention to it. Like if your eye ever slipped off it, you're lost. Is that how you view God's word? Not out loud. Answer that question. Is that how you view God's word? Follow up. How would you prove that? Do, do you value God's word the way the psalmist did? Psalm 119 is all about God's word. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119. 171 of them name God's word in them. It goes by a number of different words. It goes by precepts, word, instruction, ordinances, decrees, commands, statutes, so there's different ways to refer to it, but Psalm 119, every verse, other than five, and even those five are a little debated, talk directly about God's word. And what does the psalmist say about God's word? Verse 24, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. 31, I cling to your decrees. 32, I pursue the way of your commands. Verse 40, I long for your precepts, 52, I remember your judgments and I find comfort in them. 54, your statutes are the theme of my song. Verse 131, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commands. Is that how you view his word? Go after it. Go after it. Pursue it. Study it. Read it, memorize it, meditate on it, pray through it. Why? Because this is where the knowledge of who God is and what he's done comes from. P 
Peter promised us last week that everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. How do you get to know him? Through his word. Not through any other source. Not through any other voice. Not through any other uh, church. Not through any book. Not through another teacher or another pastor. Only through his word. If you're coming on Sunday and expecting me to give you the full picture of who God is, you're in trouble. You would do well to pay attention to it. He says, as until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, Jesus is coming. You need to be clinging to his word, devouring it until he does, because it's only through his word you can know him. Peter's going to be way more specific soon, but too many times we're looking to the wrong resources, and then we end up challenging who Jesus is and what he can accomplish. It's not about who I want him to be, who I like to imagine him to be. It's not about who I have experienced him to be. It's about who he says he is. And our greatest problem is we tend to treat Jesus like the the six blind men treated that mysterious being called the elephant. You ever heard that? They've never seen an elephant, experienced an elephant, and suddenly there's an elephant placed in the midst of them, and the six blind men descend upon the elephant to, to, to determine what exactly has been placed before them. And, and one goes to the trunk, and he, the, oh, it's a snake. And another one goes to the ear. It's like, this is like a fan or a magic carpet or something. And, and one goes to the leg. says, this is a giant tree trunk. And, and, and one goes to the side and begins to feel the side. And this is like a great, a great wall. One handles the tail. Oh, it's a rope. And one handles the tusk. No, it's a spear. And they begin to argue among themselves. No, it's a wall. It's a fan. It's a spear. It's a no, unfortunately, that's how many, even many in this room, approach who Jesus is. After all, who's to say what he's like? He's infinite. We're finite. So it's somewhat reasonable to think that none of us can fully understand him. So come on, come on, come on. Let's just get along. Let's, yeah, you say fan, I say spear, you say wall, tree trunk. Man, let's just stay unified. What's the big deal? There's a lot of significant errors with that. But the greatest one is this. The elephant speaks. And he says to the blind men, I'm an elephant. No, you're a wall. No, I'm an elephant. Well, about the spear. No, 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 no. Understand, I am an elephant. It would be irrational to ignore his voice. First of all, a speaking elephant, you should always listen. But it would be irrational to, to ignore his voice. There's nothing short of foolishness for you to argue against the elephant and say, but I prefer to think of you as a tree trunk. That's what's done daily in our understanding of who Jesus is. Value his word. Because in it what you'll find is that there is one God. He alone is worthy of admiration, adoration, worship, praise, sacrifice. He will not share his glory with any other. And when we try to give that glory to another, we find ourselves in the crosshairs of his wrath. One son, his name is Jesus Christ. He is equal in power, strength, and honor. He alone lived a life that was fully submitted in obeying the law, 
It was his willing sacrifice on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead for those who put their trust in him as Savior that provides hope for eternity. There is one Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. He is equal in power, strength, and honor. He works in the hearts of the men and women through the word of God to testify to the goodness of God and the majesty of Jesus Christ. There's one gospel. It cannot be watered down. To water it down doesn't make it appetizing. It ceases to be the gospel. And the gospel tells us plainly and clearly, you must repent. Confessing that you're a sinner separated from God because of your sin. But hallelujah, Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you and God could be reconciled. That's what God says in his word. may not be what you read in a book or hear somebody on TV say. God forbid anybody ever stand in this place and say something other than that. But I'll tell you this. The prophets of old pointed to it and it's been gloriously fulfilled for you. But you can only know it if you run to his word. Would you run? Father, where else can we go? It's your words that have eternal life. Not because they're magical, not because they contain mantras, but Father, because they contain the full explanation of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. I know when we go through difficult times, we want to find more. We want to see something different. We want to have full understanding. And so we seek answers in the worst of places. Lord, please, would you forgive us for that? Lord, would we run to you and only you? Would we be committed to valuing your word? Even today. Even today. Thank you for the beauty of your word. That is not just filled with bad news, but includes the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Thank you for his death for me. Thank you that he lives for me. Thank you that you and I are at peace because of what he's done. It's in the name of our Redeemer I pray.